You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. I want to share a couple things with you this morning. Um, last week, we talked uh, through Galatians chapter 1. If you remember who was here last week, if you recall. If you weren't, don't worry. Uh, you won't be... Um, I'm not going to, this isn't just built on last week, this stands independent of, uh, but I want to share a couple things um, that I believe are going to challenge us this morning. Is that okay? Um, I hope that you walk away from this. I hope it challenges you. I really do. I think this morning, uh, if you don't want to be challenged, uh, just block your ears, because in in preparation for this, I walked away from last week's uh, time together, and I felt like I spiritually discerned something. Have you ever discerned something when you know that you know something, but you don't know why you know it, but you know it, and then you know it? So I I walked away last week feeling and sensing something um, really about our church, but I think more than just our church at large, it's something about the city of Scranton and uh, in this surrounding area. How many people know that the problems that we face here are different than the people that face problems in Nashville, Tennessee? Or let's, let me give you an extreme example, Las Vegas. All right, now, now they're a little bit different in Vegas. You don't, you don't see too many Vegas problems as you do in Northeast PA. There's a whole different set of problems that, that line themselves up. And one of the things that I feel like, and we, maybe you can help me if you can track with this, if you discern this, is that in the Northeast, we've become accustomed to uh, lack. We've become accustomed to less than, and religion has become, watch this, rather than a church on a mission, religion has become a coping agent. Can somebody walk with me on this so you understand what I'm saying? Religion, rather than being church on a mission, church engaged in culture, church bringing transformation, church and Christianity has become coping agent. So my life is bad. My life's not going anywhere. I'm not trying to make an overstatement because I know there are people. There's always exceptions to this because this is not infallible. But what I'm saying is that in general, religion in this area has become a coping agent. So rather than being a church on a mission, engaging in culture, actively trying to win the lost, see transformation take place, we have kind of just settled into the gear of, "Eh, we're, we're okay with less than. Uh, I'm not trying to be offensive to you. If you don't like this, you're like, uh, I'm happy with what I have. That's what I'm talking to you. Okay. First John chapter one, verse, first uh, John four, 10 through 11 says this, this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be our propitiation for our sins. Watch this beloved. If God so loved us and sent his son, we ought to love one another. He starts off in saying this, that this is love. This is the gospel. Watch this, please. If you hear anything this morning, I need to make a real strong declaration. And then after this, if you divorce what I say at the beginning and the end, you're going to leave really confused. So just hear me. This is the gospel. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us, sent his son to be our propitiation. Does anyone know what the word propitiation means? It doesn't mean he hurt your leg or anything. What propitiation means is that he absorbed the wrath on our behalf. This is the gospel. God loved you enough that he would initiate salvation. Now, salvation, I want to just challenge you, is not about escapism. It's not about living this life and someday waiting for life to end and then we get to go be with God. But literally, he absorbed the wrath that is due us in the here and now so that in the then and there we'll be saved. All right, so that I can have freedom now and then. Like, you ever have the now and later candies? 
get the cavities. All right, so now and later. We get salvation now and later on, okay? That Christ absorbed the wrath on our behalf. We, uh, I mean, long story short, here's the gospel. We deserve wrath. God loves us enough that he absorbs it on our behalf. That's the gospel. But now watch this. He doesn't just leave us like that. He says this. Brothers, if this is so, in other words, you got to determine if this is so. In light of this, what are you going to do with it? And he says that if this is so, then we ought to love one another. So we understand that through the scripture that the gospel calls us not to sit in a church, but to be actively involved on mission. But Christianity has been ravished in our country by consumerism. So now church is about what makes me feel better rather than what church I'm on mission with. I Sorry, in case you were like, man, I should stay home for brunch. All right. She offered me brunch. You're like, Denny's, have that buy one, get one free today. All right, no, they don't, in case you go there and ask me. But rather than church being something that this is the church I'm committed to, identified with, on mission with, moving towards, uh, we, we're, it's more like, nah, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of just going there. I like it. Now, when I was younger, I don't know if you've ever heard of the power team. Has anyone heard of the power team? It's like Christian bodybuilders that kind of get to like somehow justify steroids in Christ. I don't know what that's about. These guys are huge, all right? I mean, they're just massive guys. And uh, we have them at my parents' church when we were younger. So um, I don't remember how big they are. I just was small, and they were big, so they were bigger. And I remember that these guys could do crazy things. They could rip uh, telephone books in half and bench press things. Well, one of the things that they did was they advertised that it was, I'm going to just murder this weight, but it was like a thousand pounds of ice or something they were going to put on my dad and something like that. And they were going to crush it with a sledgehammer on a bed of nails. All right. And I'll never forget this. It's eternally etched in my mind that uh, going to church that night, it was like, I mean, I'm a little kid. I'm going into cardiac arrest over this thing. And I'm thinking, my dad is laying on a bed of nails. I, all right? He lays on a bed of nails. And my older brother at that time was probably like 11 or 12. He's like crying hysterically. Gets my dad in the office and he's like, Dad, you're weak. You can't handle this. I'm doing it in your place. And my dad's like, Justin, and Justin's like, seriously, like, Dad, I'm not letting you do this. I'm, I'm going to do this. You're going to die. And uh, I'll never forget it. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, everyone's like, you know, I'm, I'm a little kid. I mean, this is, this is kind of a monumental thing. And they have these huge blocks of ice. And I don't even know how they got them on there, but they stacked these huge things of ice up. And then they were going to put a sledgehammer and crush it over. I mean, this is kind of a cool thing. But I'm watching it. And next thing you know, you know, here it comes. And they're setting it up. The guys are flexing all that kind of stuff. I'll do that for you later tonight. And they, you know, the whole, the whole setup, the whole scene. And then it comes out. They go to get the sledgehammer. And they start freaking Where's the sledgehammer? Now, all right, that was cool for everybody else but the sun. I'm sitting there going, you got to be kidding me. Are you, I mean, now, I don't really understand, like, you know, playing into the crowd. When you're, when you're six, seven years old and somebody forgets a sledgehammer, that's a bad time to forget a sledgehammer. So finally, they play around, they get the sledgehammer, crack the ice over it, they flex. My dad comes out, got one little scar from one little nail. They didn't have it even out. But the interesting thing is this. Why didn't that pierce him? Maybe you can, you can track with me. I mean, as adults, we understand it was a bed of nails. It was something that it was evenly dispersed weight. It made no impact. If that was one nail with half the weight, my dad would be walking around with a nice bed of nails right into his stomach today. Or it wouldn't be here. 
Why? Because power is in focus. The power of a spear is that it has a point. The power of the church is not that we have a bunch of ideas together, but that we rally together under mission. See, Jesus gives us tons of commands. He gives us one mission, and the mission is go into all the world and preach the gospel, and I'm with you to the end of the age. Now, I want, I want to challenge your, your uh, thinking on this. When Jesus says, behold, I'm with you to the end of the age, That's not go out on your best human effort and I'll back you up. It's not go out on your best human effort and if you really need me, I'll show up. What he's saying is that as you go, I'm infused in everything you do. Go into all the world. Go into all the world. And as you go, I'm infused into your words. I'm infused into the mission of who you are in Acts chapter 1. The Bible says this, and the Holy Spirit will come on you and you'll be power to be witnesses. We've turned witnessing into doing. The scripture calls us to be witnesses that happen to do things, not do things in hope of being. Uh, I want to provoke us as a church that we're a church on mission. We're not a church of consumers that sit here, but we're a church on mission. I love running into people, and maybe you've already seen this happen, that you'll be in a grocery store and somebody will just, it's the right moment, all right? I'm not, I'm not talking about you've got to go up and give them your doctoral thesis on, you know, why the Trinity is made up of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm just talking about loving people. But you show up or you pull through a gas station and there's somebody that you can just give them. We've got cards here. And listen, this isn't, this isn't a desperate attempt to, to grow a church. This isn't an attempt to say, we have people we need to reach a few weeks back um, my wife was at a uh, restaurant. It was so cool. She ran into a lady and her, her dad, um, which my, my wife's, I guess it's my father-in-law. Um, if it was my wife's father-in-law, that would be my dad or scary. Anyways, think through that there. Um, <laughs> nobody caught that. But just right in that moment, hey, man, we're, we're about to pray for our meal. Can we pray for anything for you? Instantly, the lady just goes, you have no idea. And, and, and now is finding city lights to be a church that she can feel comfortable in. That's amazing. God's called us everywhere. We're a church that's on mission. This is why we worship. That's why we preach. It's why we built a cafe. That's why we bought this building. The reason we bought a building is not to be comfortable. It's to house people that we're reaching. God gave us this facility to do something with it. God has called us on mission. See, uh, I want to take just one minute before we hop into the message, and you think, oh no, we're already halfway through it. In June, June 10th, uh, we're going to have a, a basically life change weekend. And what we're going to do over these next few weeks building up to this is begin to interview people uh, from our church that have come to faith in Christ uh, by just, you know, later in life, or if they grew up in church, how they came to Christ. See, there's kind of this misconception that just bubbles around church that uh, everybody that's in church has always been in church. And that's just not necessarily the case. On June 10th, we're going to have a celebration. We're going to do a great video of different testimonies of people that have come to faith in Christ. Over these next few weeks, you're going to get to hear some insane stories. I've shared people's stories. Now, listen, not with their names. It's confidential. But stories have been shared with me. I've been able to say, listen, there's people in our church that have done this. In this church? What? We, we've, we've walked through incredible difficulties. And listen, your friends, your coworkers need to hear. They need to hear. 
They, they need to hear what is objectively and tangibly happened. And we're looking forward to June chapter 10th. Love, uh, June chapter 10th. You know I'm a pastor. June 10th. Uh, to be able to... Um, <laughs> I'm struggling. June 10th. Uh, as we're going to have that, we're also going to have a picnic afterwards. And just really have a celebration. All right. Enough of that said. Open your Bibles. Galatians chapter 1. That's where we're going to springboard. Then we're going to work our way into Matthew chapter 13. And uh, this will be a good time this morning. Acts, or Galatians chapter 1, radical, we're talking about unleashing your commitment to Christ over these next few weeks. Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, I'm an apostle, what on earth is that double clicking? Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, just catching everyone up to speed so we all understand what's going on here. Very much in Pauline fashion, when he writes a letter to a church, he starts off with this, who I am or who I was. And Paul starts off to this church in Galatia, or the churches in Galatia, and says this, I'm Paul, an apostle. Now, I went in detail about this last week, and I'll simply recap by saying this. The word apostle in that time was not a Christian word. If you hear apostle today, we think 12 apostles or somebody that has apostle on a business card. We don't think, in that day, when they said apostle, what he was saying is this. I'm an emissary or somebody that is sent on behalf of another. In the first century, an apostle could mean really one of two things in, in, in its uh, foremost uh, thrust. One is this, that it was a Roman naval fleet. You were an apostle, one that was sent forth on a mission. So when Paul says, I'm an apostle, he's in essence saying, I'm a military man that's sent on a mission, not on my own, but I've got orders above and beyond me that's commissioned me to something. Number two, an apostle could mean something like this. An apostle was either a slave or somebody that was less than that you owned as a rich man that was sending him on a journey or sending him on to a dangerous mission. And in fact, one commentary says that this was the slave or person you are most willing to risk for death. How many of you want to sign up for that job? That's a great one. What do you do? Uh, I'm not really sure. All right, travel back then wasn't like, they didn't have AAA, all right? You, you broke down in your chariot or whatever, you were like, you know, can, you get, can I get help? You broke down, you broke down. All right? So there's no, there's no AAA. He's saying, I'm an apostle sent from God on a mission. On a mission. This reckless abandonment, this reckless faith was what the first century church was birthed in and not till a few hundred years later was there even such a thing as a nominal Christian. It's amazing to me in our culture that you can claim Christ in one moment and really have nothing to do with him. See, until about the uh, third century, Constantine became a Roman emperor. Legend has it that as he's going into battle, he sees a cross in the sky and converts to Christianity. See, for the first 300 years of Christianity, Christians were under a hotbed of persecution. Let me paint the picture to you like this. In the first century... Uh, It was basically each person, each Roman citizen had to go before the emperor once a year and burn a little incense to him and say, basically, the emperor is king of kings and lord of lords. See, that phrase, king of kings and lord of lords, is not a Christian phrase. It was a Roman phrase. Once a year. And in fact, they actually, Jews, they wouldn't even make them do that because they would actually, at that time, some of them were sacrificing to the emperor. So all you had to do was show up once a year, burn your incense to the emperor, and say, 
you know, Caesar's king of kings, lord of lords. And if you did that, you could go serve whatever god you wanted to. See, Rome was the most pluralistic society that even imaginable. I think sometimes we look at it as American Christians and we think that our societies, oh my gosh, there's so many gods. There's, I mean, what do we do? It's postmodern era and everything. I mean, really, if you study the first century church, it was so pluralistic. There were so many little gods here and there with people worshiping. I mean, it's, in, it's incredible. And in the first century, if you were a Christian, all you had to do was show up to the temple. Listen, once a year, once a year, I mean, imagine, imagine the temptation that sat in at the time. All you had to do was once a year show up for the emperor, burn a little bit of incense, and go, Caesar's king of kings, lord of lords, go on my way. Then go be a Christian the rest of the year. But because of their steadfast commitment to the gospel and to Christ, they chose not to one day of the year bow their knee and instead, in defiance, say, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And the rest is history to see the incredible persecution. We've created something where we're able to divorce commitment to Christ from salvation from Christ. The way you know an apple tree is an apple tree is not because you plant it with a seed, but because you know at one day it's going to bear fruit. Somehow we've been able to divorce discipleship from Christianity and there's, there's no such thing as a discipleless Christian. We have to move forward and grow. If we're not growing, we're not living. There's a story also, a few, actually right around that same time, and maybe you've seen this or read this, it was an interesting thing. I was talking to my friend about this this week, and just the call and commitment to Christ that the first century church actually had and how we have so softened it or pulled it away from. And listen, I told you this last week, I'm not a big fan of pain. I'm not... I'm not voting for persecution, all right? I'm going to follow Christ before that would happen because I'm not really a big fan of pain, okay? If it happens, I'll keep following. There was a battalion of men, though, 40 of them, a Roman battalion that was sent out into all these battles. And the story has it, and apparently it's a true story because some Catholic churches actually still celebrate this today. It's interesting. 40 men... Uh, began to conquer incredible enemies all over the land. And their leader found faith in Christ and actually began to convert each of these soldiers until all 40 of them were saved. All 40 of them had a commitment to Christ, following Christ, until his superior advisor said to him, listen, I love you so much, but you're going against the king of kings and lord of lords who's Caesar. So we're going to ask that all you have to do is just say that you renounce your faith in Christ. We love you. You're prestigious. This is all you got to do. And they said, no. He began to beg with them, please, all I'm asking you is just renounce it. We love you. Rome needs you. Rome wants you. You're, you're advancing beyond anybody else. You're victorious. You could be a symbol here. And then all we need you to do is renounce Christ. And they said, no. So in punishment for this, they led them out onto a freezing lake and 40 Roman soldiers stripped them down naked onto a freezing lake, put a rope around each of their necks that linked to the next. They then baited them and said, listen, we have a bathhouse that's just offside the lake with fresh pastries. I'm not sure what they made back then, but whatever it was, some pastries and a fresh bathhouse. And all you have to do, you're going to stand out on the freezing lake naked. And all you have to do is pop the rope off and walk over. Just pop the rope off and walk over and just denounce Christ and you'll go. And as the night began to go on, the 40 of them began to say, 
40 strong stand in Christ alone. 40 stand in Christ alone. They begin to chant this victoriously through the night, through the night as they began to get frostbitten until ultimately their voices began to get lower and lower and lower. One of them pops the rope off his neck, goes to the bathhouse and denounces Christ. It was at that moment that the people's voices begin to get lower and one of them denounces Christ, begins to shake, realizing that in his mind all he had to do was just say, you know, I'm sorry. It became too much. And the soldier that watched him come back in, realizing that 39 other men, that Roman guard ripped his clothes off, ran out to the pond and began to say, 40 strong, standing Christ alone, and died the next day. When you think about the intensity that the gospel calls us into. Listen, I'm not talking about legalism here. I'm talking about gospel-driven discipleship. That's something that says, brothers, if this is so, so then love. If the gospel's real, see, it, it really comes down to, to value, what we value and how we value it. When I was younger, I used to collect baseball cards. And I had one, it was a Ken Griffey Jr., uh, 24 karat gold. I'm not sure how they impressed that into a card. But, I, man, I think I would have died for that. Unless I had the opportunity, and I pass. But everything, every, I mean, it was, that was it. My value was on that. Does anybody else have anything like that? You had a trinket, or I don't even know what a trinket is. But if you had something like that, maybe you collected trinkets. You had something, though, that you so highly valued. And as life goes on, doesn't your values begin to change? See, when you're younger, it's your baseball cards or your collection of whatever trinket you have. And then it goes on, and then it becomes that relationship that you have. And then something that's beyond me still to come, then it's, I'm guessing, the kids that you have. Your values begin to change. See, in, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus shares with us two types of parables. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. It's amazing. See, there's two types of discipleship. And in fact, all religions call us into some type of discipleship. all, All religions have radical claims. I don't know if you noticed that. If you meet somebody that is of Muslim faith or Buddhist faith or anything, they all have some sort of growth attached to it. It's something that they're aiming for. It's some sort of nirvana or heaven or something that's calling them into strict. Now, a lot of them have uh, strict forms of asceticism where they punish themselves. But what separates gospel-driven discipleship from all other forms of discipleship is that Jesus doesn't just give us commands and say, go do it. He goes, here's what you do. I'll show you how to do it, and I'll give you the strength to do it. What, uh, what separates gospel-driven discipleship from any other discipleship is this, that God doesn't just give us command and say, go do it. See, if you meet a Buddhist, it's all about getting better inside. How can I purify myself? How can I do this? But the gospel does this. It gives you the command and the grace to do it. That's what separates it. See, but my fear is this. The scripture says that the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. When I, when I really look at my priorities or my value, 
We all, you ever hear, I, honestly, sorry, if you're one of the people, I'm not trying to rebuke you publicly, it just happens to be what I'm about to say. People complain about time. I don't have enough time in the day. All right, listen, whether you like him or not, Barack Obama runs a country in 24 hours. You run a family, just saying. All right, should we move on? We, we, we all get 24 hours. It, it amazes me, though, that we, we can be able to prioritize things because, listen, you prioritize what you value. You value what you love. But yet, we're, I don't really have time for that. Listen, I'm not talking, talking about not having busy days. A man only has so much room for a passion. That's why Michael Jordan couldn't play baseball. Guy can win six, six championships, goes to swing a bat. I mean, they could have been throwing a, like a, a massive beach ball and he couldn't hit it. Why? Because a man only has so much room for passion. And my question is, what is your central passion and focus? What is it all about? At the end of the day, I'm not saying, well, I love God. No, I'm saying, at the end of the day, what do you value? Whereas in Matthew 13, the scripture says that a man who is a merchant of pearls, this is what he dealt in of all things in life. The moment he sees one, he goes, I'm selling everything for that. That's the beauty of the gospel. See, listen, it's not about, I want you to hear this again. The only way I can provoke you to this is not by saying you need to do it. I can't do that because the gospel is not a need-driven discipleship. It's a value-driven discipleship because you will grow in Christ directly tied to how much you value him. The only thing I can do is to, to try to make him beautiful for you this morning. That's, that's it. All I can do is say, open your eyes and, and see Matthew chapter 13. Right before this, he shares with us the parable of the sower and the seed. And he shares four different types of soil. And just for the sake of time, rather than going through the whole thing, I'll say this. The story first says that he sows seed on the path. And it instantly dies. And Jesus explains that person who's... Seed, the seed of the gospel falls on the path. He says that that type of person is a person who hears it but doesn't understand it. Have you ever met anyone like that? Maybe you're someone like that this morning, or maybe you used to be. We're in one of those categories where we hear it. It's not, it's a guy, I don't even know. I I hear it. It's not understand as in the sense of like we don't understand as if, you know, they they used to have those gospel cubes. I don't know if you ever saw those. I, I, I get confused with them. People are trying to, you know, like, you can you turn them inside out and everything like that. The only problem with that is I had Jesus raising from the dead before he died, so I was, I was moving the cubes the wrong way. But you have these things where you can explain the gospel through an easy presentation or something like that. It wasn't too easy for me. It's not that people don't hear the gospel and go, yeah, I understand Jesus died for my sins. Yeah, I understand that Christ is restoring all things when he comes to the earth again. I understand that I can have a new faith in him. No, it's not, it's not hearing the gospel and not understanding like that. It's understanding is that it moves beyond here to here. First, he says that there's seed that falls on the path. Then he says that there's seed that falls on rocky soil. And these are people that hear the gospel, understand it, and at jump up at first, and it's great. But then the worries of life become to come in. And number three, he then shares that there's people who, and listen, the soils are hearts here. The soils are hearts. Number three, he shares a soil of thorns, and it says that the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth begins to scorch it out. It grows up quick, but then it's crunched. And number four, then he, or five, I guess, he finally shares the good soil, that people hear it, receive it, and understand it. The parable behind me, the treasure in the field. The kingdom of God is like a man who sees a treasure. 
sells everything, buys the whole field to get it. See, this isn't about how good the treasure is. It's not how good the pearl is. It's what our perspective and what our value is for it. Gospel-driven discipleship calls us to something that we value Christ so much above anything else that we're willing to, listen, mortify our flesh. That's a great King James word. Mortify. In light of the gospel, Paul the Apostle says this, I want to apprehend what I'm apprehended for. I've been saved, therefore I will violently pursue this as if nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. He uses these analogies over and over and over. He says that people that compete for a crown, he's talking about the Olympics in the first century, compete for a wreath that is going to rot and dry away, but we're fighting for a crown that will last forever. Has anyone ever done any, like, intense training? Anyone? All right, not so much. You're like, man, I've been, I watched all American Idol last year. It's intense, man. <laughs> I've been staying up late for it. All right, that's not what I'm talking about, all right? You've done intense training, a training regiment. Anyone have a regiment? You get, you get into reading books on it. You begin to, your whole life's focus, all right? Now, I'm, I'm the... I'm the fan of watching my wife do this, to be completely honest with you, all right? Erin's running a marathon, and uh, she just, just finished her half marathon. And it's hilarious, though, because her whole life's focus goes into, how can I get my time better? How can I get my speed better? Even to the point when she eats a cookie, she's like, shouldn't have ate that. Erin was made of whole wheat and oats. <laughs> yeah, but it was like 50, it was, it was half carob and half chocolate. Really? I'm like, pass cookies, all right. All of life goes into that. Anybody, anybody like that, though? You've, you've seen that? I'm not just talking about food. Everyone's like, oh, I should have ate that. No. I'm saying your whole life, though, focused aim is that this is what I'm going to accomplish. And everything else, listen, it's not that the cookie tastes good. It's not that it doesn't hurt to run and train. It's that those aren't worth it. I'm competing for a prize. See, the gospel is calling us to a form of discipleship when all other pleasures in life, listen, pleasures, pleasures, when all other pleasure, pleasure, I can think of a lot of pleasures when all other pleasure is no longer worth it. Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about Moses. And it, Moses, it says this, that he considered the reproach of God or Christ, the reproach of God greater than the wealth of Egypt. Listen, he was born right into the Pharaoh's palace. And he said, I would rather be spit on, ridiculed, but know Christ to know God. That's incredible. This, the spirit's willing, the flesh is weak. We only have so much room for passion. At the end of the day, we show up. I'm, I'm, I'm being honest. I'm not, I, I want you to, I hope we got enough equity where I can talk real to you here. We show up as if it's like we live our whole week exhausted and we just glide into church. We listen to, our, listen to a message Hopefully he's funny that morning, being me. And like the, we like the worship music. All right, offering was good. I didn't feel like I had to give too much this morning. I wasn't compelled. Oh, ice cream social. I don't really want to bring toppings. I'll just come and use somebody else's toppings. All right, easy. All right, bring your toppings, for goodness sake. All right, I'm just kidding, unless you want to, but I want you to. 
You, you just kind of cruise in, though, as if it's like, watch this. We have the rest of the week happening, and then we just kind of glide, in, glide into it. And listen, guys, I understand. I understand you only have seven days because I only have seven days. And listen, I catch myself complaining about time, and I go, time out. It's not about time. It's about values. I don't have time for time with Christ. No, it's not about, it's not about time. It's about values. What have I not seen in Christ that wants me to place him above everything else? What, what, am, what am I not getting about this? That the Proverbs would say that you're worth more than gold and silver. Because in my mind, if you were able to say, hey, Jared, just for a day, if you want to go out and you can work, just work for one day, listen to this. One day of work and you don't have to work the rest of the day, I'm going to work my tail off on that day. Because that's gold and riches. But King David says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. God is calling us to make impact. Listen, God did not call us to start this church as a coping agent for people in this area that need to get through a hard life. He's called us to preach the gospel, to set captives free, to heal the sick and wounded, to open the eyes of the blind. Do you, do you feel that? The intensity of what God's called us to. Every week I hear, we were praying here on Wednesday night after our, or Thursday night, Mark shared a story of a coworker of his who locked herself in the bathroom and just started shooting up as much heroin as possible to the point where they had to break in and resuscitate her. Uh, that's an extreme example, and I understand that's an extreme example, but simply this, that this world is just shooting themselves in a the foot. And whether it's with heroin or with the nicest car and fastest uh, car and nicest restaurant, whatever it is, People are taking temporal things and making them ultimate. And God has called us as a church on a mission to begin to turn people to faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. We're on mission. We're on focus. We don't have time for anything else. We don't have time to entertain ourselves. I know this is a family conversation. Again, you're saying I should have had brunch. This is, God has called us into something more than a coping agent. I want to challenge you this morning, as we see from the scripture, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who in finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What an intense commitment. I want you to see this. And I'll make one gospel declaration. Discipleship is not a prerequisite to be saved. It's not a prerequisite to be saved, but you cannot be saved without discipleship. You can't. If if we look at our lives, how do we know that we're a Christian by our fruit? It's not, listen, listen, salvation's free, discipleship costs you everything. Discipleship costs you everything. What God has called us to as a church is that we would be disciples of Christ. That he would call us into different focuses. Listen, I'm not talking about legalistic. I want you to understand this. Because if you walk away from this message and you go, all right, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go home and read my Bible. I'm going to go home and do this and this and this. this. You know what that's like? That's like trying to conquer gravity by jumping as high as you can in your best human effort. You'll never be able to do it. You're going to spend all day, all night, jumping as hard as you can. 
John Piper says this in great quote in his, in his book, Desiring God. The only way to triumph over sin is by gaining a distaste for it and finding ultimate satisfaction in Christ. Listen, discipleship is not about, all right, I'm going to show everybody next week when I come in, I'm going to be prayed up. I'm going to worship like no one else is worshiping. I'm going to go out. No, 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 no. That's, that's not it. See, discipleship happens when we understand, Jesus, open my eyes. This is, this is better than I know. For whatever reason, my addiction to pornography, my addiction to drugs, be it over-the-counter or whatever. Listen, let's not, let's not play games here. That, that, this is right here. My addiction to alcohol, my addiction to my identity being wrapped up in people and hearing people say good of me, all of that. We, we keep going back. Listen, the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl for a man who's searching. Listen, this morning, the, the, the pearl is right here. The treasure is right here. Treasure's right here. Pearl's right here. Our response to it. I, I, I know this, like I, I challenge myself every time I hear this because there's no such thing as a nominal Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't have discipleship. I'm not talking about a Christian that doesn't come to Wednesday and Thursday nights. Sorry, don't feel, I'm in two weeks. I'm not saying that. I'm saying a Christian who is submitted to the king and on church with a mission. Let me make just one plea that may really get you upset, all right? And and I'm okay with that because I love you enough to tell you don't run in front of the car, okay? The early church doesn't have a concept for being a Christian without community. It doesn't even have a concept. And, And it... doesn't, doesn't even have a framework that you could be a Christian and, and not be connected to a church. St. Cyprian, 300 AD, says this, he who does not have God for the father, he who does not have his church for the mother does not have God for his father. Somehow we've made this Jesus and me. Me and Jesus. What does Jesus look like to you? Let me just tell you real quick, and I know I look angry, I promise I'll smile. Jesus has become your dream giver and dream fulfiller. And the moment your dreams crash or don't come true, you run from him. We've turned Jesus into Jesus and me. How is he going to give me a better life, a bigger house, a bigger this? And if I can just do that, listen, I'm desperately asking for a church that will follow the call of Christ however, wherever, and not dreaming my dream anymore, but dreaming his. I'm not talking about storming the White House. Don't draw up weird things. Oh, right. No, no, I'm not a sign guy, okay? I'm talking about people who dream the dream of God that streamline their lives. But yet we've isolated it to the point where Christianity has no commitment. Jesus starts off, he's got a crowd of 5,000 and goes, hey guys, let you take up your cross and follow me. And all his disciples leave, watch this, all his disciples leave except just a few. And Jesus turns to them and goes, you guys leave in two? And Peter goes, where can we go? You have the words of life. God is calling our church on mission. Radical, focused, streamlined passions. In time of war, nothing else matters. I was thinking about this week. If my house burned down, which I really don't want it to, if my house was burning down, what would I grab? First thing I'd make sure Aaron's out. 
after that, I really don't have anything. I mean, computer, because I don't want to buy another one, but I mean, really, no, I don't really have any, like, ancient artifact from Egypt, so don't break in and try to find it, okay? I mean, there's nothing really there. I got a house, got some, it's a house. So when I look at that, why in, in life or death, if I was really focused, if it was brought down to that, then why in my daily focus am I so captivated by garbage? If truly the end of my life, I could really boil it down to just my relationship with God, my relationship with my wife and my friends. People. God and people. Why would I focus then so intensely, but yet we find ourselves like Olympic athletes competing for temporal crowns when Christ has called us to eternal, ultimate pleasure. It's beautiful news. Listen, this morning, as we close, if I get the worship team come, we have the privilege to go to God in worship. I say this every week, but if you're trying to work up love for God, don't, 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 try, don't try to work up love. I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you. Just begin to say, Lord, give me a perspective. Give me perspective where my life isn't about chasing a pension. It's not about chasing somebody's dreams. It's, it's about what, Jesus, how can I follow you? I told you today it was going to be a little challenging. <laughs> Did that help anyone this morning? I'm not saying that for my affirmation. I'm saying it for yours. I, I, I'm telling you, there's nothing, there's nothing worth it. I can't imagine anybody on there, and I'm, just, I'm sorry for going the death card, but I'm going to just for two seconds because it's going to happen whether we like it or not. If you're privileged to have a deathbed experience and privileged to actually make it that far at the end of your life and have that, and not die suddenly or unexpectedly, if you're privileged to actually think through the end of your life at the end of your life, I don't think any of us here would say, you know what, I really wish. Listen, these aren't bad. I want you to understand this. I I make so many qualifying statements because I'm so afraid you're not going to hear what I'm saying. I don't think anyone at the end of their life is going to go, you know what, I wish I would have just did a little bit more of this in my life. A little bit more. No, at the end of our life, we're going to go like this. (laughs) Jesus my life is so fleeting. <laughs> That's it. Let's not have regrets about, I wish I vacationed more. No, no, do that stuff now. Have a blast doing it. Let's streamline our focus while we do that, though. Can we stand together? Lord, this morning, um, the kingdom of heaven calls us to radical discipleship. Lord, all religion calls us to discipleship. All all religions do, whether we're Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu. (laughs) There's no such thing as passive religion, as if it just, we sit there and we're the recipients and it centers around us. Jesus, you're the King of kings. The Lord of lords, we humbly come. This morning as we worship you, as we take communion, Lord, we're not asking to do this out of human effort, we recognize that these, we don't have the ability, Lord, in our own desires, pleasure of this world tastes too good. Can somebody just admit that with me this morning? It just tastes way too good. It's just too good. It's just money's too good. Power's too good. It really is in our own human effort. It's just, it's just too good. It's a comfortability. It's just too good, Lord. We stand before you humbled because we recognize that we can't disciple ourselves but we can submit.
we can submit. Lord, I pray that you streamline our focus. Lord, those here, the, the, will, will, they will they'll punish their bodies so that they can run a race that'll be here today and gone tomorrow for a medal. There's those here that will punish their minds to gain academic achievements or punish their bodies to fulfill a certain job. But yet we come to you and we say the Spirit's willing and our flesh is just weak. Lord, forgive us for using the last of our energy. Somebody pray that with me this morning. Lord, forgive us for using the last of our energy to love you. Lord, we, we want to know. We want to be possessed by the beauty of Jesus, the greatness of God. We want to be possessed with a focus to know you and to make you known. Lord, all other focuses, I pray in your kindness that you begin to strip them from our hearts, strip them from our hands so that we could love you and we could serve you and that temporal things wouldn't be an obstacle, Lord, but a platform. Pray that with me. The temporal things wouldn't be an obstacle, but a platform for you. That our jobs would bring glory to you. That the food we eat, the wine we drink, the everything we do would be for you. Lord, possess our hearts. That this church isn't a church out of focus, like a bed of nails, but like a spear. We're on a mission, and that mission is together. It's not separate that we come together once a week, but Lord, we're together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.